I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. David White of But First Champagne and also the founder of Terroirs.com on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm good, Levy. Thanks for having me. Very nice to see you. So you're uh, a DC man these days, but you weren't born there, were you? No, I was born in uh, I was born in New York. Uh, moved to Massachusetts when I was eight years old, though, so I don't call myself a New Yorker, nor do I call myself a Bostonian. I'm a, I'm from DC now. How's that treating you? Uh, I love DC. the The city has changed tremendously since I moved there. I moved there about 13 years ago. When the stereotype and cliche that DC was nothing but bad steakhouses for lobbyists to dine at was actually pretty much true. A couple of restaurants changed it, a wine bar named Proof, an Indian restaurant named Rasika. I think they were trendsetters. And now DC, I think, is one of the most exciting food cities in the country. So it's a fun place to live for that perspective. It does seem like Philly and Austin and like so many other towns that there's been a rush of new restaurant openings. Yeah, I think that's one of the surprising things to me about the food people are getting excited about is in these, you don't want to call them these second tier cities, but we think of Chicago, New York, San Francisco as obvious places for exciting food. And now people talk about Charleston, South Carolina, Austin, Texas, Louisville, Kentucky, Boston, Massachusetts, where I grew up, uh, have a lot of fantastic restaurants now. And DC is on that list. So your wine career, I mean, it starts a little bit before DC, but the move to DC and your wine writing kind of coincide, right? Sure. So I, majored in political science and used to love politics and moved down to Washington, D.C. to write in politics. My first job was in speech writing, uh, left about a year and a half later to work at a political magazine, did that for a few months, uh, linked up with a former Wall Street Journal writer who had started a one-man ghostwriting company. So we went into business together a few years later. First, I worked for him, then we went into business together. So for about four or five years before I started writing about wine, I'd been a professional ghostwriter. So What's I knew that like it's fun. It's a lot of fun. You know, you you I love talking about ghostwriting because it shocks people that anyone aside from the president of the United States has a ghostwriter. And then you say, well, of course, senators and congressmen don't write their own stuff and people nod their head. And then you say, well, CEOs of major corporations don't write their own stuff and people nod their head. And then if they've had any experience in academia, they know that professors don't write their own stuff either. That's what PhD dissertation students are for. So it's a lot of fun to ghostwrite because the people that you work for are coming from a good place, passionately believe what they want to say, oftentimes are very capable and qualified and able to write it on their own and don't have the time to. 
so it's easier to talk to me on the phone for 30 minutes and have me provide them with a draft that we then work back and forth on until it is in their voice and it is their piece than for them to spend 12 hours to write it on their own. So I love ghostwriting because you, I get to write about all sorts of issues that I'm interested in and don't have strong opinions on. So it's a lot of fun to write for people who do have strong opinions, regardless of whether or not I agree with those opinions. So from there, you know, uh, in 2007, I fell head over heels in love with wine, did everything that one who falls in love with something does, started reading as many books as I could, started taking classes, started getting deeper and deeper into the hobby, which for me included, because I was younger at the time, collecting wine by buying nicer bottles at places like Safeway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, like Kenwood Cab was $20 instead of the whatever cab I had been buying for $13. Were you an eye-level shelf buyer or more of a low shelf You man? know, I remember my desire to start collecting wine coincided perfectly with the Safeway closest to my office going out of business. So I was able to get like Stag's Leap wine cellars at 50% off, which I think brought the price from, you know, 70 to 30 or something like that, which was, was and still would be tremendously exciting. I started collecting wine before I even knew what I liked. I, I, I loved those early days of discovering wine, tasting everything, reading everything. By 2010, all my free time was consumed with wine, reading about it, tasting it, going to events, uh, whatever I could do to learn more about wine. And I realized at that point that I should write about wine. I knew how to write. I knew how to place articles. I knew how to do PR. I had all these skill sets that would be beneficial if one wanted to write. And I had yet in life found the thing that I wanted to write about myself. And I realized, you know what, there is one thing that I want to write about, and it's wine. So that's why I started writing about wine in 2010. And what were some of the first topics? I mean, what was your approach? Sure. So early on, of course, I live in D.C. I worked in politics. Um, my firm today does a lot of policy-type work. We do public policy PR. So early on, that was the world I knew. So my first published article was in the world of fine wine, and it was on the history of interstate shipping laws in the United States. Real uh, sexy stuff. Real sexy stuff that uh, you know still frustrates consumers everywhere. Uh, in Illinois right now, uh, no retailers outside the state of Illinois will ship there. It's not as easy as one might think to purchase wine as a consumer. So I found that topic fascinating. I still do. And because that was the world I was very comfortable writing in, those were my first few pieces. What was the world of fine wine like in terms of engaging them on a writing level? Um, they were very British in their approach in that I... When I decided to start writing about wine, I didn't really know where I was going with it. I knew I wanted to start a blog, and I had all sorts of ideas for that blog, and I knew that I wanted to write about wine policy because that was my comfort zone. So almost to educate myself, I started researching the history of interstate shipping laws in the United States, why the interstate commerce clause doesn't apply to booze. It's as simple as, well, the 21st Amendment gave liquor regulations to the state. So interstate commerce doesn't really apply to liquor. So in researching all this and writing it down and organizing my thoughts, the next thing you know, I had a 3,500-word essay on what I consider to be a really interesting topic. Now, even to this day, if somebody said to me, hey, I have a 3,500-word piece on some esoteric piece of wine information that I think some people would be interested in, you know, total wine geeks would be interested in, what do I do with it? I would say, World of Fine Wine might be a good outlet for it. <laughs> it is the place to go for that sort of writing. Uh, so fortunately, I, I pitched it there, and the, the editor, Neil Beckett, accepted. 
uh, very kind note, you know, ap- apologies. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. We're putting our, I think it was our July issue to bed. This was in 2010, but maybe we can do this in our September issue. I'll get back to you. And followed up a week later, followed up a week after that. And two weeks after that, he wrote me back and said, we'd love to publish this. You know, it will be in our September issue. They paid me for it. So it was this wonderful first entry into wine writing. That article came out in September of 2010. And I knew that, hey, if I'm going to tell the world that I'm a wine writer, well, right now I'm just this random guy who has suddenly had this article in the world of fine wine. Sure, has a lot of subscribers, but I was afraid it would vanish into the ether if I didn't do something to say, here I am world. So at that time, I was uh, working on the design of a website called terroirist.com. I purchased the domain name several months prior. And after I purchased it, another blog launched called terroirist.net which was so stressful to me because here I am, I own terroirist.com before terroirist.net launches, but now I'm, gonna, I'm like afraid the world is going to think that I stole their idea. Fortunately or unfortunately, the you know, gossip in wine blogosphere is, is probably you know, six or seven people, so I don't think anyone noticed or cared. So in November of 2010, I launched the blog, and the delay between September and November was really me figuring out what sort of wine blog I would want to create. So what was that? I mean, what was important when you were thinking about it? Because that seems like a, I mean, a lot of people just go home one night and like kick up the blogger yeah. face and just kind of start writing stuff down. So you took some time to think about yeah, it. Yeah. And I think what you just said is what bothered me about the approach to, to blogging and wine blogging. I mean, I do think the heyday of wine blogging was probably, I was probably on the ascent of it in that uh, it's unfortunate, but I think the wine blogosphere probably peaked around 2012. Why do you think that is? Because there was just so many of them, and 2012 was right around the time when people stopped reading blogs because Facebook became a blog. Instagram became a way to document what you were doing. If you think about blogs, uh, a lot of people are writing long-form essays. Well, now you can write Facebook posts, and all the people that read your blog are probably your friends on Facebook because, let's face it, uh, very few blogs have tens of thousands of readers. Most have a few hundred or a few dozen, and they're your friends. They're going to read your Facebook posts. Other people use their blogs simply to photo document their life. There's an app for that. It's called Instagram. So I think because there were alternative forms of blogging and also publications like Medium, you know, if you had something that you truly thought deserved a long form, deserved a larger audience, you didn't know how to pitch it to magazines or newspapers, well, now there's a free website called Medium where you can publish that. So the desire to start a blog wasn't as high as it was prior to all these other outlets for folks. And when I thought to myself, well, I should have a blog in 2010 when this was still a relevant thing, not that I wouldn't say people shouldn't do it today, but in 2010 when I had this thought, you know, I was spending all of my free time reading about wine. And when I wasn't reading wine books, I was reading columns by Eric Asimov, columns by John Bonet, columns by Jay McInerney and Letty Tague, columns by Ray Isle. I was reading Vinography. I was reading One Wine Dude. I was reading Dr. Vino. I was reading all of these blogs every day of the week. I had Google alerts set up to stay up to date on wine news. That's how much of a dork I was back then and still am. And I had all these news alerts set up and it frustrated me that there wasn't a site out there kind of aggregating everything that a wine geek should read every single day of the week. 
I also realized, you know, one of my favorite blogs at the time, in addition to yours, was Wine Terroirs, which is still yeah, one of my favorite that's sites. That's one of the best. It's, yeah. it's just fantastic. And as a wine tourist, as someone who fell in love with wine on a trip to Napa and then promptly planned trips to Sonoma and Argentina and the Willamette Valley, I loved meeting winemakers. I still do. It's like, you know, you're fascinated by these people who make this beverage that's so compelling and so captivating. So I loved learning about winemakers, and the way I learned about them was on Wine Terroirs and Wine Doctor. And I thought to myself, why isn't there a website that regularly profiles winemakers? Shortly thereafter, it dawned on me, well, if I just interview winemakers, I don't have to write a 3,000-word essay. I can just talk to them and transcribe it or just do it over email, and me and the world will learn all about these winemakers. It's kind of like the ghostwriting thing, again, though, right? Because <laughs> yeah, it's kind of yeah, what you used great, to do, right? That's a great comparison. That You know, if, if you talk to someone, it's as if they, they wrote a short autobiography of themselves. So I was so frustrated that there wasn't a blog offering all these things that to me seemed obvious. So finally I said, you know what, this will be what my site does. And I thought that if, you know, if it's 2010, I'm coming out of nowhere. The world has venography. The world has Tyler Coleman with Dr. Vino. The world has Joe Roberts with One Wine Dude. If I'm going to make take this seriously, it needs to be a daily site. This site needs to offer a consistent product to people. It needs to be branded. They need to visit that 8 a.m. every morning there has to be a daily wine news feature. Every Friday there has to be a winemaker profiled. Every Saturday there has to be wine reviews. So I took it very seriously from the outset. And I also knew that now that I had this daily blog, now that I'd been published in the world of fine wine, well, now I could go out and say, hello world, I'm a wine writer. So I wrote another op-ed. I think my second op-ed was published uh, in either the LA Times or the New York Times. It was back to back, same sort of thing, both on wine policy. And it was uh, extraordinarily flattering that I believe about a week after, I think it was my New York Times piece, I think it was Tom Wark of Fermentation, who called me or emailed me and basically said, who the heck are you? You know, three months ago, I hadn't heard of you. And now you've got this daily wine blog and you just had a piece in the New York Times on my most, my favorite issue in, you know, interstate shipping laws and consumer access to wine. So the the beginning of the kind of wine writing career was, was a lot of fun. And it's because I went at it with a great degree of seriousness and I tried to make a splash. So when you were designing the color scheme for terroirs.com, walk me through the thought process where you said, you know what, this would look a lot better if it was all green and black. <laughs> um, you are the, the second person in a week to say, when the heck are you going to update your, your, <laughs> the way your site looks? That's how I'm interpreting your question. The, the dis- you remember it. It's distinctive. It's, <laughs> it's distinctive, and unfortunately, while the 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 logo is is humorous, um, it was designed. What I'm 34 now. Um, I guess I'll be 35 soon. When I when the site when I designed the site, this was in you know early 2010, so I would have been in my 20s still. When people are a little less mature, and you know, in retrospect, I don't think that terroirist.com should have a sniper scope over a bottle of wine as its logo. So I probably should update the design of the whole site soon. But to answer your question, uh, green and brown and black, the thought was terroir. Um, oh, the thought okay. was See? terroir. The, there, there actually was a thought process there. Who's the dummy now? <laughs> Who's the dummy now? I never picked up on that. Yeah, there was a thought process there. I was talking to my designer, um, and I said, you know, she said, what does terroir mean? And of course, like most wine writers, it was, you know, a 500-word answer to the question, and she probably just wanted a one-word answer. Um, but eventually what we settled on was like, you know, we have to convey that I'm talking about 
soil and climate and that magical combination that explains why wine from this vineyard tastes different than wine from this vineyard. And we settled on colors that reminded people of the earth, which is why we did brown and green. But yes, I think it's, it's due for an update. So what were some of the challenges to daily wine blogging? There were two. The first is that uh, finding time to do something every day of the week, especially when it's something that doesn't pay any of your bills, is a struggle. There were times, you know, there was a four or five year stretch until I, I hired Shelby Vitek to kind of run the wine news. There was a four or five year period where I never missed a day. And on the five to 10 times when I couldn't do it, friends of mine subbed in for me. It was really challenging. I mean, the last thing you want to do as a wine writer is get home from a dinner where you just had, you know, you and six friends had 12 of the greatest wines of your life. You are buzzed. You are exhausted. You know that you have to be at work in seven hours and you would like to get a full night's sleep and you have to finish your damn blog for the day. And it would take at least, you know, sure, by the time all was said and done, I probably was able to pull it off in 30 to 40 minutes. But there were times where it would take me an hour to find what wine pieces people should read that next day. So doing something every day of the week is a slog. And the other challenge to it was that it took time away from what I would rather be doing. And what I mean by that is it's, of course, sure, I'd rather be eating great meals and drinking great wine and having fun and, and all the rest, all the, all the other things that make life fun and, and texturally interesting. The other thing, though, is that it took time away from writing about wine in essay form, writing articles, writing books. Um, when I finally gave up the Daily Wine News feature, the thought was twofold. The thought was, all right, this will actually give me time to care and dedicate the time I should to my twice-monthly column that I was writing for Grape Collective. And it also gave me the breathing room I needed to develop the idea for a book. You know, the thought was, hey, if I have one hour every single day of my life to write about wine, what the heck am I doing serving as a human news aggregator? Um, I'm thrilled that I found somebody else to do it because I still read my site every day of the week. But with one hour free every day to write about wine, I would rather spend that time writing longer form stuff. Well, it sounds like kind of an apprenticeship where you cataloged all the other pieces that you had read. I mean, I might just read a piece and be like, cool, I read that piece and then go on with my day. But you actually provided a link to it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which is, you know, you were going to read it anyway, it sounds like, in that time in your life. Like exactly. Like you were tackling all that was out there. Exactly. And exactly. then you worked through that to the point where you felt like you had things to say. At that point, you wanted to say I'm not sure things, if I ever thought know? of it that way, but I, I think you're correct in that I would have been doing that anyway, at least for the first few years. And by doing that every day, I probably read more about wine than most people. And there's a lot to learn from all sorts of wine writers. And there's a lot to, you know, you say this, I say this about all sorts of people. Like, you know, you can learn to be a good writer by trying to replicate someone or trying to do the opposite of someone. So by reading so many wine writers, I got to see which sort of writing really spoke to me, which sort of writer I didn't want to be. That's usually what real writers do, right? Sure, like, sure. You know, James Joyce read everybody else before he decided everyone else was full of shit and he was going to yep. do his thing. And, you know, you hate to say so many wine writers are full of shit, but that was one of my takeaways. I'd be oh, yeah? yeah. That's true? <laughs> I'd be lying if I said it wasn't. You know, um, one of the things that that's always bothered me as a wine writer is this this desire that folks have to demonstrate and prove how much they know. In wine writing especially, 
people are so focused on demonstrating knowledge that it oftentimes is just as intimidating as wine itself. And it's unfortunate that wine is intimidating to so many people out there. One of the things that I found interesting about this current book that you've done, which is But First Champagne, is how patiently you work through the history of champagne. I think a lot of other writers would have kind of cut to the chase and been like, here's my 10 favorite grower champagnes. Sure. And, you know, here's my three favorite Chardonnay-based champagnes, and here's my favorites from the 2011 vintage or 2010 vintage. But, I mean, a really big portion of this book is on the history of Absolutely. the region and the wines and the history told through different lenses, whether it's the history of kings and how that affected things or the history of production methods or the history of bottles or so how did that come about and why did you hone yeah. in on that approach as the one you wanted to you take? can read about jay-z and the beastie boys in my book you can also read about the crowning of clovis in 496 when the roman empire fell so it's, it's all in the same book how did that come about i wrote the book that i wanted to buy like i created the blog i wanted to read i wrote the book i really wanted to own you know the story of how i wrote the book is in the summer of 2013, I was obviously seven years a wine geek at that point. And if we think back to the summer of 2013, when Instagram was taking off, we could probably name the superstars of Instagram that summer. It was folks like Frederick Savart. It was folks like Jerome Prevost. It was these producers that are fantastic. And I'd had a lot of those wines with a friend of mine this is a guy who knows and knew a lot about wine. And we'd had a lot of great champagne together over the previous year. And he was about to go to champagne for the first time. And over lunch at Potbelly, we were just having sandwiches across the street from the place where we both store wine. And he said to me, hey, I'm about to go to champagne on vacation. What book should I buy to get my head around the region, learn the region's history, answer the questions I should know the answer to, and learn about the producers I should know about? And I realized that even though my house is full of wine books, just like your place, I couldn't think of an answer to his question. I could think of Richard Julin's 8,000 Champagnes Tasted and Reviewed. I could think of Tom Stevenson's Guide to Champagne and Sparkling Wines. Both great books, both very, you know, they're reference books. They're academic books. You're not going to curl up in bed and read one of those books unless you're studying for, you know, a master psalm exam. I could think of the Widow Clouteau. I could think of Wine and War. I could think of these great history books of the region because Champagne is packed with history. But I couldn't think of this book that you could just grab off the bookshelf and maybe sit down and read while curled up in bed or also say to yourself, hey, earlier tonight at dinner, I had a great bottle of wine from Agripar. I wonder who that is. I wonder where that wine came from. I wonder what the assemblage is. I thought like, how does this book not exist? I was not the guy to write this book. I'm still not sure if I was the guy to write this book, but in the summer of 2013, I thought, geez, why doesn't this book exist? Fast forward a year, I go to Champagne on vacation with my then girlfriend, now fiance. When I left for the trip and- I like when how I, you did that. <laughs> Good choice of place to go. Yeah. When I left for that trip and when I returned from that trip, I was tremendously frustrated that this book that Kevin talked about, that we both thought would be a great book, didn't exist. Um, in the car ride from, I guess we were driving, we went from, we went to Beaujolais and Champagne. In the car ride from Beaujolais to Champagne, I handed Amy a Manila folder that I brought with me, and I was like, "This is your, your, this is what you're supposed to read for the next hour." And it was, you know, a John Bonnet column on Salos. It was a rare wine company profile of Salos. It was uh, an article by somebody else about Didier Gimenez. I think it was probably the Thies catalog. You know, so I handed Amy all this stuff that she had to read about champagne, and I, I don't know if she read it all. But, you know, I thought to myself, like, I've printed out articles for this trip because this book doesn't exist. 
fast forward a few months, and I was very fortunate to go up to Boston to have dinner with Terry Thies. A friend of mine in D.C. had one dinner with Terry at a, at a wine auction for the American Heart Association. And John said, hey, it's, you know, Terry's taking me and someone else out to dinner. Why don't you join us? Flew up to Boston, knew that yeah, at the least I would have a lot of fun. At most, I would leave with some really good ideas for wine columns. So went up there, had dinner with Terry, had an amazing time, came back to after dinner. I said, hey, Terry, let's, uh, I want to follow up. I want to interview you on the phone to, so you can repeat some of these stories that I'm surely going to forget because I think these will make for some really good wine columns, how you decided to start importing champagne, things along those lines. So within a week, we chatted on the phone. And by the end of that phone call, I looked at my notes. Uh, you know, I transcribed the interview. I looked at my notes and I realized I didn't just have enough for a few columns. I had enough for a book proposal. I knew an agent at that point who had been uh, bugging me to come up with an idea for a wine book. So I, I emailed Keith Urban, my agent, not the country singer, different Keith Urban. I mean, I was going to ask. <laughs> and I said, Keith, you know, I think I have an idea for a book. It's, it's going to be a guide to all things champagne. And, you know, he was like, I'm pretty sure that exists. And he started searching Amazon and he realized that it didn't. So that was kind of the catalyst for that book. And that's how the process started. What was the next trip in? I mean, when did you get to Champagne again? I didn't get to Champagne again until the book was, for all intents and purposes, put to bed. Really? Um, which is to, you know, so to get to your question about history, so write this proposal. I don't know if you've seen a book proposal or if your listeners have. Book proposal is generally, you know, here's what the market competition looks like. Here's who the author is. Here's what the introduction to the book would look like. Here's a sample chapter or two. Um, wrote two sample chapters and all the rest. And fortunately, got the book contract in November, so uh, 13 months ago, I suppose. And they wanted the book about a year later, which seems and still does seem like a reasonable amount of time to, to write a book. And I wrote them back right away with my agent and said, hey, don't you think a guide to all things champagne would sell a lot more copies if it came out before Christmas time? And they said, yes, it probably would. So I said, well, what do you need for that to happen? And they said, well, we need to have the book by April because it needs to be in production by May. So I said, all right, I can do it. I can write a book in four months. And the reason why people are shocked, how did you write a book about champagne without going to champagne? Well, think about the format of the book. And for those who haven't seen it, the book is divided into two sections. The first half of the book is a history of champagne. And throughout the history of champagne, I try to answer every question that might come up. And I try and tell fun stories along the way. Because a lot of those questions that come up don't fit logically into the history of champagne. How was champagne made? Well, does that essay talk about the early days when the bubbles were purely accidental and the bubbles were the modern day equivalent of Petnat? No, that's not in an essay about how champagne is made. You just need a clear cut essay that just describes the traditional method, outlines the process. So that first section of the book, that 133 pages, which to me is the heart and soul of that book, that's the part of the book that I hope people curl up in their beds with and read before going to bed. That 133 pages is history. And to write history, you know, I'm, I'm not doing primary research. I'm not a, an academic at Harvard who's studying champagne to make new discoveries about the history of the region. So obviously for that, how did that process work? You know, I bought or downloaded every single history of champagne I could find, every article about the history of champagne, only a handful of which are mentioned in, in the selected bibliography. Obviously, that section of the book could be written without a trip to champagne. The second half of the book, which I describe as the reference part of that book, I don't think, I, I'm, a, I'm, an, I'm an avid wine reader, I'm an avid wine drinker, I am probably not going to sit down and read 
80 producer profiles in one sitting. I'm probably going to read a producer profile because I've forgotten something about the producer that I think I know, or I've just had a great bottle of champagne from a producer that I'm not that familiar with and want to learn more about. So the second half of the book is I profile about 80 producers and I talk about the four major subregions of champagne, why the Cote de Blanc is different from the Aube. And for that section of the book, of course, once you're talking about geography and climate and terroir within those four different subregions, again, that's research. And when you're talking about the producers themselves, that is information from their website, information from their importer's website, emailing with them, and, and information from retailers and the like. And one of the great things about living in, 20, in the year we're in, in 2016, 2017, is that you can email with folks and they reply. And every time I did that, the producers got back to me. So it was possible to write it without going there. And when I went there in April, the main point of the trip was to take all the photographs for the book. Fortunately, the, the deadline for the book lined up with what's known as Champagne Week, which is a week when virtually every producer is in town hosting giant tastings with like-minded producers. So me and my photographer, John Trinidad, knew that, hey, if we go this week, we're going to be able to get a lot of the people we need photographs of in one room at one time. So we were able to visit the special club tasting and take, just pull producers aside and say, stand against this brick wall. We need to take your photo. We went to the biodynamic tasting, same sort of thing. Obviously, the book was not yet submitted at that point. So I certainly made some edits, crossed some T's, dotted some I's, got some clarification, even on some basic things. Like there's conflicting information out there about whether all the single vineyard Solos wines are Soleras or Perpetual Blends. I asked him. He answered me. Um, so that was that was one of the benefits of going in April. I could I could kind of answer was the, the outstanding answer question. Was uh, answer intelligible, or was it more like a Zen koan? It was a combination of both. So it was, you know, I, I think he had recently lit his. Have you done the tour there? No, no. Okay, no. <laughs> yeah. He uh, he he has a he has a shtick that I could watch that shtick a hundred times, where he talks about how you know all flavor is found in the soil, and he'll inevitably point to some ham that's curing on his ceiling, and he'll light a piece of fire to talk about how at everyone's core is nothing more than carbon and dust and ashes. That shtick was done, and he was so excited that I um, knew about all the single vineyards and was there with like a really intelligent question about them. So uh, he got super excited and he ran me into, you know, where the Substance Solera is, started in 1986. He was like, here's the Solera, here's why I hate Soleras, which is why everything else since then is a perpetual blend. And it was a combination of French and English and John is, John Trinidad's French was good enough to like live translate on the spot what, what Anselm was saying. Well, that sounds cool to me. It was it was cool. It was probably the uh, you know one of my favorite experiences of the trip there. Organizationally, everything you said sounds smart to me, like in terms of approach. But were there surprises in terms of something that was more challenging than you would have expected? The biggest challenge was trying to fit in all the history that I actually thought was necessary to understanding the region. The book starts in the year four ninety six, and why would you start a book about Champagne in the year four ninety six? People these days, sure, talk to us about Krug, talk to us about Moet, talk to us about Ruinart, the first champagne house. But why are we going back to 496? Well, here's why 496 matters. 496 matters because Roman Empire fell in 496 and the first king of France was crowned in 496. Where was he crowned? He was crowned in Rems, where the cathedral stands today. What did they do after he was crowned? They partied with wine. What would that wine have been? It would have been local wine from Champagne. So if today in 2016, if champagne is a celebratory beverage, 
when was the first time the champagne became a beverage of celebration? Well, I would argue that it was in 496. And every single king of France since then was crowned in champagne. And every single time they partied with champagne. So of course, it's a celebratory beverage and it's been one since 496. So it was that sort of thing. It's like, well, geez, if I got to start the book in 496, how the heck do I get to 2016 while still keeping this book to the ethos I want, which I want this guide to be approachable. I want this to be a book for aspiring wine enthusiasts. And I want wine geeks and enophiles and sommeliers to be thrilled that this book finally exists. So how do you kind of marry all of that together? Well, it can't be a 600-page book. If you spend too much time on history, no one's going to read it or just academics are going to read it. So I knew that I had to kind of breeze through history quickly, but I, there's a lot of important history in Champagne. So that was the challenge. Like, how do I get from 496 to 2016 without skipping over important details? Because there's so much important history in the region. I'll be honest, that's my favorite part of the book because I learned so much reading that. So were there particular kind of passages of that that stood out for you? I mean, you know, there were things I thought, boy, that's unexpected. But For sure, for sure. Um, Every story about World War II and Champagne is just uh, pulls at the heartstrings, fascinating. You know, some stories that, you know, of course, didn't make it in there. In April, while I was there taking photos for the book, we spent a half a day in the cellars of Boulanger taking photos. And Boulanger, for those who don't know, every bottle of Boulanger, when it ages for a lot, it's on cork. It's not on crown cap. And every single bottle is hand riddled. They're not using the, the giant riddling machines. So while we were down in the cellars taking photos of hand riddling, the guy we were photographing was a guy named Florent Michel or Michel Florent, um, one or the other. And we started talking to him through the Boulanger uh, tour guide, the guy who was down there with us. And this dude told us that he was the oldest Riddler on staff, but when he started there in 1983, at the age of 16, he was the youngest Riddler on staff. So that in itself was really interesting. So we start talking more and we said, well, how did you start working at Boulanger? And he said, well, my father worked here. And I said, what did your father do? And he said, well, my father was a disgorger. So you think about this family, it's like, all right, well, he's a Riddler and his father was a disgorger. This guy's whole family has a history of Bollinger. And then we say, oh, well, was your father the first person in your family to work in the cellars of Bollinger? And he said, no, 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 my grandfather worked in the cellars too. So we said, well, what did he do? And he said, well, Bollinger was smaller than everyone did everything. And we nodded our heads and then we looked at each other and realized that, well, his grandfather probably worked in the cellars of Bollinger during World War II when Nazi Germany occupied Champagne. So we said, wait a second, your father worked here when Nazi Germany occupied Champagne. What was that like? And he smiled and said, well, my grandmother briefly lived in the cellars during that time. And we said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, when the Americans came to liberate our village from Nazi Germany, the whole village went down to the cellars of Bollinger. And then when we emerged, Americans had liberated our town from Nazi Germany. So you realize that the region is just packed with stories like this. So everything about World War II was interesting. I also love, you know, to be completely honest, I think, you know, we all remember Cristal being in the nightclubs and it's what's the origin of hip hop and champagne? We obviously know that champagne is this product of luxury and there are so many reasons why champagne branded itself as a luxury product, champagne became a luxury product, champagne became this beverage of celebration, but what's the deal with rap and champagne? And as I started researching that, of course, I decided for myself, I think this was the deadline was was creeping up on me quicker than I could have expected. So at this point, the writing process was basically 6.30 until 9.45 every single morning. 
and 6.30 until 8 or 9 or 10 or 11 every single evening. And as the process went on, those nights became longer and longer. And I remember at about 1 a.m. one night, I realized I was sitting there listening to rap from the, like, the early 80s. But those were some of the earliest mentions of Moet and, you know, champagne brands. So it was kind of fun to work on the, the rap section of the book, even though it's only a few paragraphs in there. Were there particular rappers that you think <laughs> really changed the course of champagne consumption? There was a time when every single photograph you saw of a rapper with a lot of money, whether it was Jay-Z or P. Diddy, they were holding a bottle of champagne. And that, you know, put on steroids this notion that champagne is a product of luxury. And if you are a wine geek, there is nothing sadder than like coming to grips with how much Dom Perignon or how much Cristal is sold in strip clubs. There's nothing sadder than seeing these tete de cuvées just flipped over in a bucket, even though they were half full at a nightclub. Not that I've been to a nightclub in 15 years, but rappers certainly had an impact on, on the consumption of that and the mass consumption of these luxury prestige cuvées. Ace of Spades wouldn't exist as a brand. Ace of Spades is produced by Cartier. Cartier actually, one of the interesting things in my book, which, you know, so much of our current obsession with champagne is a rediscovery of what was already there. And one of the theses I have in this book, and, and I will get back to Ace of Spades and how it fits in here, but one of the theses in my book is what's new is old. And what I mean by that is a lot of us put the origin of America's interest in grower champagne to 1996, 1997, when Terry Thies visited the region and introduced his first producers here. And those who really study up on it might say, no, 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 it was 1981 when Kermit Lynch brought in LaSalle Champagne, the first grower champagne with a national importer. Well, the special club, uh, they were created in 1971. You know, in 1971, a group of more than 20 growers, including folks like LaSalle, Paul Barra, Pierre Jimenez, Gaston Chiquet, a lot of these growers who make fantastic wine, they got together to tell the world that their top wines were as good as anyone else's top wines in 1971. So they certainly knew that what they were doing was special, and folks in the local market certainly knew that what some growers were doing was special. And then if you think about the current obsession with singularity in champagne, the move towards single vineyard, single vintage, single variety champagne, well, sure, we think that's the hot new thing because it is the hot new thing. But I would say Salone deserves the credit for, the, for that because it was in 1921 that Salone bottled its first wine. Single variety, single vintage, single village. Obviously for multiple parcels within the village, but folks who have been to Champagne know how small these villages are. I mean, these villages, you can throw a tennis ball from one end to the other in virtually every village in Champagne. So when you talk about wines, though, well, this is from two parcels. Well, those two parcels are probably the same terroir because they're you could spit into from one to the other. So Salon was 1921. Philippinac Clos de Guaz, single vineyard, single vintage, multi-variety, 1935. And the third one in that story is Cadier with Clos de Moulin. In 1951, Cadier decided that the greatest expression of champagne would be from a single vineyard, but would be from multiple vintages. The first release was two vintages. Every release since then has been a blend of three vintages. But, you know, Cadier deserves a spot at the table when people discuss the origins of singularity in champagne. And Cadier today, of course, is best known for being the producer of Ace of Spades, a brand they no longer own, but a wine they still make. And that wine was created as a joke in 2000. The president of the house um, was actually quoted, I believe it wasn't until 2014 that an article was written about it, but he acknowledged that it was very much created as a joke 
to create the most luxurious, the most you know ostentatious in everything from its name to its packaging. We all know that gold bottle to the grapes inside the bottle. I mean, kind of like the story of Krug where Joseph Krug's goal was to create the richest expression of champagne. Cadier's goal was to create the most uh, luxurious expression of champagne. And it was kind of a joke. I do know that today we are more excited about the grower who's missing a finger and, you know, and plows with a donkey. Why is that? I would argue that uh, the recession has a lot to do with it. When the market crashed and everyone kind of reset expectations and reset what they were looking for, I would venture to guess that that's when the obsession with authenticity really started. And uh, authenticity has absolutely become a buzzword. And authenticity in champagne shouldn't always mean growers. In fact, you know, I, I think a potential trend in champagne will be the, the micro-negociant. But I would say that we probably would overlook the link-up between economic growth and the obsession with authenticity. And I think that was the timing was good for the growers in that when the market crashed, people will, hey, wait a second, maybe we don't want Cristal. Maybe we don't want Tat & J. Comte Champagne. We want something made by our farmer wearing flannel who can offer a champagne for $35 or whatever those grower champagnes would have cost in 2008, 2009. So when you look through the historical record, you know, as you said, back to 496, were there parallels to that? Were there times where the champagne industry really grew and then contracted or really changed its focus? Absolutely. There is arguably no better barometer of economic strength globally than luxury good sales. And there is no luxury good that uh, at a broad level can almost be looked at as a commodity more than champagne. And if you look at champagne sales year over year over year, when the global economy is doing well, champagne sales are going up, 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 up. When the economy tanks, champagne sales go down, 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 or simply burst. There's a direct uh, correlation between the two. So yeah, you can kind of get an economic snapshot of, the, of, of world economic growth. Uh, booms and busts simply by looking at champagne sales. That's why they call it a bubble. <laughs> that is the reason. They actually call it a, yeah, yeah. It did seem interesting where champagne sales would turn up in that history that you wrote, because, for example, you mentioned that the French resistance clued into the fact that a lot of champagne bottles would go to the German army. It's where one of my favorite were. stories in the book. The, the head of Moet at the time of, during World War II, during the Nazi occupation, was the head of the Champagne trade group. So he was the one tasked with talking to the wine fur, the Nazi who oversaw Champagne production. So he was running Moet. He was the representative of Champagne's growers to the Champagne board. And he was also the head of the resistance movement. I don't know when this guy slept. Um, but one of the things that, that the growers in Champagne realized was that there were very strict uh, production quotas that Nazi Germany had for champagne growers. And all the champagne that was being produced was going to Germany for the Nazis to drink. And the exceptions to that were when wine was going to out, out to the troops. And the champagne producers realized that when they were shipping wine, it was for the soldiers to celebrate victories. So they realized it was with a shipment to Morocco that they got the news to the Allies that, hey, wait a second, we're shipping a crap ton of champagne to Morocco. I think the Nazis are about to mount an offensive there. So they realized that every time they were shipping champagne somewhere, that's where the Germans were mounting an offensive, and they were shipping it there in anticipation of a victory celebration. Were there other times that champagne really played into political or world history that was bigger than just the region itself? 
That's a good question. I mean, one thing I would say is the history of France, and it doesn't quite answer your question in terms of world history, but you have to realize France, uh, modern day France, sure, we know all about modern day France, we know where it is, we know what the country is, but in earlier times before mass transit, Burgundy didn't seem that close to Champagne, and neither Burgundy nor Champagne seemed that close to Paris. Yes, they were all in one country, but Burgundy almost went to war with Champagne many times, and many times it was it was over wine and who made better wine. And that was one of the really interesting things in the book too. You know, I, I argue in the book, and I'm not the first person to argue this, that the bubbles were accidentally discovered at the perfect time. Um, wine in the 16 and 1700s was put in cask and sold in cask. In France, actually, it was against the law to bottle wine. The reason for that is that the king of France taxed producers based on production. And the regulators knew that it would be easier to count casks than it would be to count bottles. So if you were a wine producer in anywhere in France, you were not allowed to put your wine in bottles. Well, wine globally at the time was basically produced like modern day rosé in terms of the release schedule. Harvest would happen just like it does now in early fall. Wines would be released early the next spring. Well, Champagne, northernmost wine growing region in the world, of course, primary fermentation didn't always end. And this is, you know, this is elementary, but primary fermentation wouldn't always end. So in the spring, when temperatures would warm up, those yeasts would wake back up and fermentation would start again. In Britain, really smart wine merchants realized that they could sell more wine and it would taste better longer if they bottled it from cask. So in Britain, folks were getting wine, putting it in bottles, and British glass was much stronger than French glass because it was came from coal-fired ovens instead of wood-fired ovens. So in Britain, they had really strong glass, and the merchants there were putting wine in bottles. A lot of the wine they were putting in bottles from Champagne was being popped open, and the wine was, was bubbly. Of course, it'd be the modern-day equivalent of Petnat. And in Britain, they fell in love with this stuff. They fell head over heels for this stuff. Of course, in Champagne, they were trying to get rid of those bubbles. The one thing we know for sure about Dom Perignon is he was the first winemaker to successfully show everybody how to make clear white wine from red grapes. And we also know for a fact that he spent most of his career trying to make sure his wines never had bubbles in them. It was seen as a flaw then. And in Britain, they fell in love with those bubbles. So obviously, you know, wine producers are business owners. They're trying to make money. They knew there was a lot of money to be made in Britain. So they wanted to make those bubbles because they knew that was where the money was. So um, in 1728, the king of France actually gave a, uh, issued a decree allowing producers in Champagne to bottle their wines because they knew the bubbles were better captured in glass. Not any type of glass, British glass. So it was in 1728 that the King of France said, hey, in Champagne, you can start bottling your wines. First Champagne producer, Nicolas Ruinart, was the one to actually turn that into a business. And I say it came at a perfect time because Burgundy and Champagne were at total war with one another, a war of words at the time over who made better wine. I mean, they were, they were filling Paris with pamphlets about how Burgundy would kill you. No, Champagne would kill you. One would make you live longer and be healthier. No, the other would make you live longer and healthier. So the two regions were really at wit's end when it, when it came to who made better wine. And fortunately for Champagne, right around the time when tensions were getting really, really, really high, Champagne producers realized that there was money to be made and there was a good way to distinguish themselves as being the region that made sparkling wine, not still wine. You also detailed in the book how Louis XIV's doctor was switched out and 
there was a guy who liked champagne and there was a guy who liked burgundy in terms of the the doctor's advice and when that switch happened it had larger term it's amazing the the impact of wives who are from burgundy have had in french history and i say that for two reasons louis the 14th but also and i fear i don't want to keep going back to 496 but in 496 Clovis defeated the Roman Empire, but he didn't think his empire would last long because of the Germanic tribes, modern-day Germany. He was afraid that his his grip on power would be very short-lived because they were certainly going to be defeated by the Germans. His wife from Burgundy, and she said, well, you should ask Jesus for help. And he said, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not a believer. I'm not a believer. And she said, you should ask him for help. And he said, all right, here's what I'm going to do. If we win, I will convert to Christianity on the spot. She was from Burgundy. And of course, in, when he was crowned in 496 at the Rems Cathedral, he was there to be baptized. His wife from Burgundy. Same thing with Louis XIV. Louis XIV was infatuated with wines from Champagne, loved bubbles, drank bubbles his whole entire life. As he got older, he got sicker, as people do when they get older. And his wife from Burgundy convinced him that it was because he wasn't drinking wines from Burgundy. So uh, she found a new doctor for him doctor from Burgundy to replace his doctor from Champagne. And the doctor from Burgundy said, yeah, it's that wine from Champagne that's killing you. So he switched to wines from Burgundy, fortunately or unfortunately. Something else that you mentioned before was that switch into Champagne around 2002. And for me, that has to do with a few things. But one of the things I think it has to do with is Premox and Burgundy. Like, I think that that's when you saw the rise of Premox. And I think at that point in time, finance is one part of it. But I think and climate change is one part of it. But I think another part of it is the fact that people stopped relying on white burgundy as their first wine before they got the bottle of red and they replaced it with champagne. I think that's part of the reason it's quite popular now. Absolutely, absolutely. Not only that, but we can't overlook, again, I, I hesitate to talk so much about Salos, but in Richard Julin's first edition, I, I, don't, I haven't read 8,000 champagnes tasted and reviewed. I've read 4,000 champagnes tasted and reviewed. And uh, in the first edition, he introduced, you know, of course, this book came out in like 04, 05. You know, this was, this was a long time ago when it comes to wine trends. And he, when talking about Salos, which he called the ultimate cult wine, he said, and, you know, and that they're a deal because when compared to the wines of Petrus or Romani Conti, these wines are cheap. And it's very difficult to tell a normal person that a wine that comes out of the gate at $180 or $580 is a deal. But to say that the best wines from Champagne, the most compelling wines from Champagne, these deserve a spot on a dinner table with wines from Domaine Romani Conti or Petrus or Koch or, you know, these sorts of wines that are thousands of dollars a bottle. Yeah, one could argue pretty, pretty compellingly that champagne is actually a value wine. Even if you look at Salone, you know, 1996 Salone, I'm assuming would cost $500 a bottle. But if 1996 Salone is at a dinner with a bunch of DRC, no one's going to say, oh, that wine is not up to snuff. So I think that probably had a lot to do with it too. Not only was white burgundy becoming a difficult wine to consistently enjoy at a dinner with the greatest wines of the world. Um, but also, you know, people were realizing, yeah, the, some of the greatest wines in the world are from Champagne and are, are quite more affordable than the wines we're drinking from Burgundy. Which brings up another point, the role of the collector in the evolution of, of the history of Champagne. And during your research and travels and talking to people, have you seen a little bit of a shift on the collector side. And I'm not yeah. talking about dinner time champagne or cocktail party champagne. I'm talking about, you know, serious collector. You're talking about collectors who are buying a pallet of 2004 Salone to keep in a warehouse and never touch simply to 
either make money on or because they're a hoarder, as as we know a lot of collectors are. Yeah, I, I, I briefly talk about it in the book when I talk about the, the post-recession rise of grower champagne. And you know, in the heady days of the investment bubble that existed from 2002 to 2008, when restaurants like Crew and Montrachet and Veritas in New York were packed with collectors drinking tremendously expensive wine, yeah, they were driving up the price of Bordeaux or Burgundy at auction. And of course, then Asia got a taste of those wines and auction prices went even crazier. But inevitably, uh, wine collectors, no matter their income, no matter their palates, also realize that people collect wines from Piedmont. They also collect wines from the Northern Rhone. They also collect wines from Champagne. I don't think that the auction market for Champagne has quite taken off. And what I mean by that is, sure, if you look at year-over-year prices, they're going up. If you look at year-over-year auction catalogs, more champagne than ever before is included. But I don't think you uh, have anywhere near the level of uh, obsession and hoarding that you have with Burgundy and Bordeaux. And more like Burgundy as opposed, you know, the other interesting thing about champagne from an auction perspective is one might compare Negociant champagne, uh, what I mean by, you know, Dom Perignon, to Bordeaux. And that no one quite knows how much was made. We know that there's a lot. We think that Dom Perignon makes about 5 million bottles a year. These are all things that we could say about the first growth Bordeaux. Whereas in Burgundy, though, we know exactly how limited production is because you know production is tied to the size of the vineyard, unlike the size of the brand. And Champagne offers both of that. You know, Dom Perignon can make as much wine as it wants. Whereas Crude Clotomanil, Menil, the single vineyard offerings, are obviously limited by the size of that vineyard. And in Champagne, um, you know, I, I don't know if auction collectors have, uh, and what I mean, you know, the, the, the people who really drop serious cash, I don't know if they've made that connection yet. Because I think once that connection is made, it's, and it's terrifying as a consumer who loves to drink champagne, I think once that connection is made, the prices are going to go into the stratosphere when it comes to the actual, the single parcel champagne. The Crude Claude Menil and Crude Claude Ambonet, they're already expensive, obviously. But once folks realize that those wines are quite different when it comes to production numbers than Tatin J. Comte de Champagne or Paul Roger or Winston Churchill or these Tete de Cuvées. I think prices are just going to go into the stratosphere because people are going to make that burgundy connection. And then following up on that, have you seen times in a historical record or more recently where the taste of a certain culture has affected the taste of champagne, by which I mean Russia or Britain or the United States, as you've seen different consumers come in or maybe even within France, whether it be the court or not the court, has what is being produced at the place changed over time? Absolutely. I mean, the the move towards drier champagne is a conversation that, that the world has been having for 250 years. Champagne in its early days was extraordinarily sweet. And when you read old histories, you learn that not only did the French like their champagne very sweet, but the Russians liked it even sweeter. You know, the, the dosage once upon a time for the Russian market must have been through the roof. And it was the British market that really brought people to start start appreciating and start drinking drier wines. Fast forward to today, of course, that is the conversation. You know, if the if grower champagne is roughly 6% of the U.S. market, I would venture to guess that it's 90% of the conversation about champagne. And I would say so much of that conversation is, is about dosage and, and what's appropriate and what's not and what's authentic and what's not. And that undoubtedly reflects a changing taste. I mean, if you look at how our parents ate or how we grew up eating versus today, high-end restaurants once upon a time 
offered more desserts. Now they're more, you know, now people are drinking after dinner. We are appreciating bitter foods. We are appreciating green foods. All sorts of food that you wouldn't have expected to see on a supermarket shelf is on a supermarket shelf today. And that's an important thing to think about when you think about wine, because that helps explain why wine tastes are changing to more delicate, more elegant, drier wines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think you're seeing that with champagne. Um, Moet, for example, has lowered the dosage consistently over the years on Imperial, on, on its entry-level cuvee, because that's what the market has asked for. You know, a lot of times when I look at other regions, the length of time that you age something is also how the wine is classified. So Rioja is obviously the the obvious example between Reserva, Grand Reserva, or more youthful than that. And when I think about Barolo, if it's not aged for a certain period of time, then it's Nebbiolo. It attains this Barolo status at a certain period of time, and it obtains Reserva status at a certain period of time. And with those categories, especially with Barolo, I feel like, you know, most of the offerings come out about the same time or the next year for a given vintage. With champagne, I mean, are we really talking about the same wine when somebody's releasing something after a couple years and somebody else is releasing something after 10 years? There's different periods of time on the lees. I mean, as a category, are we talking about the same thing? Or when that happens, are we really talking about a different kind of beverage? I think it depends on the level of consumer. And that's why transparency on labeling is really important. So here's what I mean by that. If you are a normal human being who appreciates champagne, you're probably buying that champagne at a big liquor store, let's say a Total Wine or a Binnie's or something along that. And when you go there and you buy, maybe it's Rotorer, maybe it's Jacasson, maybe it's Veuve Clicquot, you're expecting a consistent product year after year after year after year. That doesn't mean that those producers shouldn't put disgorgement dates on the back of their bottles because for that normal consumer who's just buying Veuve Clicquot because that's the taste she associates with champagne and she loves it, if she spins that bottle around and sees disgorged on December 1st, 2012 or disgorged on December 1st, 2016, she's not going to say – I don't think she's going to say to herself, oh, I don't want, the, fre- I don't want the, the old bottle. I want the fresher one. I don't think people know what that means. But I think as soon as we're having that conversation, we do know what it means. And yes, a recently disgorged 1996 sham, you know, if you're having Dom Enotech versus Dom P3 versus original Dom, of course they're going to taste dramatically different. And you see that, you don't want to say that it's thoughtless in champagne, but, you know, there are disgorgement decisions being made all the time, and these wines are just being released as, uh, oh, here's just here's another release of, of 08 Chetillon. Well, how many releases are there of this? I don't know the answer to that. And so that's why I think the more transparency on labeling, the better, because then we can get our heads around that. So if I were to talk about Bordeaux, I might say Robert Parker had a huge amount of influence. Uh, maybe Chateau and Estates as an importer had a huge amount of influence, but I think usually people would talk a lot about Parker and not so much about the importer. For Champagne, I noticed when you wrote your book, I didn't see a lot of mentions about a writer who had moved the market in any given period of time and in the history of Champagne. It really did seem like it was royalty-based, consumer-based, war-based, or importer-based, where the importers have played a really large role in changing the perception of the region, at least in that grower era. Sure. If you think about it, one might compare it to Kermit Lynch and Beaujolais. 
would we know about Chateau Tivin, Domaine Chignard, uh, these great producers from Beaujolais, Foyard, Lapierre, the Gang of Four, if it weren't for Kermit Lynch? Um, inevitably, I certainly hope someone would have discovered those producers. But would someone have put that book together? And, uh, you know, it should be mentioned if one talks about Beaujolais, Kermit Lynch didn't just introduce the world to those wines. He had a huge influence on how those wines were produced. You know, of course, if you go to Beaujolais and you visit Chateau Tivin or, or Chignard or a um, lot of the producers in his portfolio, they have their Kermit Lynch cuvee, which is maybe 80% of production, maybe 50% of the production. And then they have the wines that they're making for their local market. Um, you know, Chateau Tivin, for example, they, they would probably say their tête de cuvée is a wine called Cuvée Zachary, which is aged in new oak. And of course, that's not a taste, that's not a flavor profile Kermit Lynch likes in Beaujolais. So that's not a wine that he imports from them. So importers have had a huge impact on other regions as well. That's why that's the first one that came to mind. Probably because Kermit Lynch, who deserves a tremendous amount of credit for introducing America to artisanal wines, as much as I hate to use the word artisanal, he realized in 1981 that he needed some champagne in his book. So, of course, if you're Kermit Lynch and you need a champagne in your book, you're not going for some negociant, you're going for a grower. And the story of Terry Thies, you know, is, is I think, the story of America's obsession with grower champagne. I think a lot of it has to begin with Terry. In 1996, he went to champagne with Odessa Piper, his girlfriend, uh, now wife to fill his trunk with champagne for the two of them to drink together. And he went to Champagne to do that because he had exhausted the number of growers available in the U.S. There were fewer than a dozen at the time. Terry went there to fill his trunk with champagne for personal consumption. Of course, by the conclusion of his trip, he realized that champagne was as much a wine of terroir, just like the wines in his book from Germany and Austria. So he decided to start importing champagne because he knew someone would do it and he would always regret it if it wasn't him. If Kermit Lynch deserves the credit for introducing America to grower champagne, well, it's not like Kermit Lynch was out there screaming from rooftops about grower champagne. They were just champagnes in his portfolio. When Terry returned home and decided to publish his newsletter with his first champagne offerings, he started screaming from rooftops about grower champagne, started calling it farmer fizz, you know, started kind of creating this, this, this artificial war between big houses and growers um, that appealed to a lot of people. It certainly really appealed to people as, as we all became obsessed with the authentic. When we became obsessed with the authentic, we, of course, instinctively were attracted to farmers who owned and grew their own grapes. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think you can talk about the rise in grower champagne or the market's 20-year obsession with champagne without talking about the importer that really introduced America to it and, as a result, the world. I mean, the, the United States is a huge wine market, and it's a wine market that really makes or breaks a lot of producers when it comes to paying their mortgage, paying their bills. So once Terry kind of started screaming from rooftops about champagne and getting folks really excited about it, it certainly, you know, had a huge impact on people drinking that wine. So then what happened next? I mean, after he did that in between then and now. In between then and now. So yeah, the, the question is, you know, well, when did we become obsessed with singularity? Did Terry Thies miss the boat on singularity? Why do people today talk about Jérôme Prévost, Frédéric Savard, Pascal Agrippa, Raphael Beresh, all these folks who are not in Terry Thies' book? Um, what happened there? What I would say there, I would say that I, I think it's important to recognize that if it weren't for Terry, there's a chance that it would have been a different region that we all got excited about. You know, would all the producers I just named, these producers who are obsessed with singularity, 
Would they have a market for their wine if it weren't for the United States? Probably not. And would the United States have been thirsty for champagne if Terry Thies hadn't introduced us to grower champagne and given us permission to drink champagne every day as opposed to reserving it as a beverage of celebration? I would argue that that no, the answer is no. That story, though, I, I do think that story begins in the 80s when people in Champagne started paying some attention to their soil. And you look at the soils in Champagne, they were decimated for most of the 20th century. Um, you know, that was one of the big surprises in my book. I think a lot of wine geeks know the story of Champagne becoming a dumping ground for Paris's trash. But for those who don't, the rise of Champagne coincided almost perfectly with the growth of Paris as a city. As Paris grew, global demand for Champagne grew. As Paris grew, Paris needed a place to dump their trash. Well, Champagne needed more compost than ever before because they were expanding vineyards very, very quickly. So the two regions struck a great deal. Champagne could get as much compost as it wanted from Paris, and Paris could deliver as much trash as it wanted to Champagne. The only point of contention in that conversation was who would pay for the train ride back and forth. Train ride to Champagne with the trash, train back to Paris without trash in it. Now, of course, it's it's disgusting to think about people just dumping trash in Champagne vineyards. Well, let's back up to exactly 100 years ago before World War I. World War I was the beginning of the petrochemical revolution. It was in World War I that chemical weapons were first used. It was in World War II that, you know, plastics were discovered and all the rest. So if you think about what trash was probably like at the turn of the 19th and 20th century, you know, 100, 150 years ago, Every single person's household trash would have made for fantastic organic composts. What would have been in the trash? Building materials like wood and stone, clothing materials like wool and hemp, food scraps, vegetable scraps, fruit scraps, bones, all this stuff that if you dump it in a vineyard, it's going to be organic compost. It's probably going to improve your soils. It's probably going to benefit your soils. Then we have the petrochemical revolution. The trash keeps coming to Champagne. Then we have, uh, thanks to the petrochemical revolution, we discovered herbicides and pesticides and fungicides. Again, go back in time. Today, we know we don't want to consume that stuff. Today, we know that we'd rather buy organic fruits and vegetables and drink wine where the, the grapes are at least grown sustainably, if not organically or biodynamically. But at the time, they didn't know all that. So you have the situation where farmers have every incentive in the world to maximize output. So they're using chemicals in their soils, absolutely. We don't know now what we knew then, and they're also probably getting more production as a result. Meanwhile, they're filling their vineyards with trash. And shockingly, the, the practice of dumping trash in Champagne was not banned until 1997. It went out of fashion in the early 80s, mid-70s to early 80s. It really started going out of fashion, but it wasn't technically illegal until 1997. It's crazy. It's completely crazy to think about. And the trash consisted of a lot of plastics. So even today, people who go to Champagne for the first time and actually walk around the vineyards are shocked if they get down on their hands and knees and start poking around, even in vineyards that today are formed organically or maybe have been farmed organically for a decade or more, you can still find trash in vineyards. When I was there with John Trinidad and Luisa Bonachea, the other photographer for the book, there were vineyards where we would find blue specks of plastic everywhere. The blue specks of plastic, that's what the Parisian trash bags looked like 30 years ago. In one vineyard, we found like a little pile of children's toys that were probably 40 years old, probably from a trash bag that had decomposed over time. So all of this is to say, you know, the obsession with singularity and single variety, you know, none of that would have really mattered if folks hadn't started caring about their soil. 
And today it's a cliche to say, wine is made in the vineyard, I care about my soil, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That wasn't a cliche in Champagne in the 1980s. And that's why I think so much of the credit goes to Anselm Salos. He returned home in 1986 after working in Burgundy, where he worked at Coche, Laflave, and Lafon. And if you're learning how to make Chardonnay, there's probably no better three places in the world to learn how to make Chardonnay than those houses. In Burgundy, he saw how people didn't just respect the soils, they revered the soils. So when he returned home, he was horrified by how Champagne was treating its soils. So he immediately moved to farming organically. He immediately started respecting the soils. Does he deserve all the credit? Absolutely not. But that mentality is what started spreading around the region in the mid-80s. And once one thinks about soils in that fashion, they are thinking like a Burgundian winemaker. Once one is thinking like a Burgundian winemaker, of course they want to explore terroir and how terroir manifests itself inside the bottle. If you are exploring terroir and how it manifests itself inside the bottle, of course the next logical step is, well, wait a second, why am I blending Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and Pinot Meunier from six different vintages and a perpetual blend from 12 different parcels? You're not. And that's where I think the singularity started. And where do you think we're going to go with this? If I were to try and predict the future, I actually think a couple things are going to happen. The first I would say, I think it's a shame. The only downside of our obsession with growers is um, that we're overlooking the micro-negociants. And what I mean by that is one of my favorite producers in the Aube is Danone, formerly Danone and Lepage, now just Danone, grew up in the Aube, learned to farm in Burgundy, returned home and wanted to make wine, doesn't come from money. And that's one thing to realize. When we think about the wines from California that we are most excited about, um, maybe it's a producer like Dirty and Rowdy. Maybe it's a producer like Masakan. Maybe it's a producer like Mathiasen. You know, all these names that, that a lot of us can name for those who know New California wines and are excited about New California producers. Of course, we don't expect these producers to own their grapes. They don't own their land. They're young guys trying to, you know, do something different and, and do something really exciting. So, of course, they're purchasing grapes. They're purchasing grapes from uh, maybe across Napa, maybe across California, whatever it is. We have no less respect for a grower because he purchases grapes. If anything, we have more respect for him because that means he's truly a bootstrap. He wasn't born into a family with money. You look at Champagne and... For all sorts of good reasons, um, we love growers, but we also ignore the fact that, wait a second, if you're born into a family with 20 acres of land in Champagne, yeah, you might be cash poor. There's a chance you haven't bought a new pair of shoes in years. But on paper, you are a multimillionaire. So why is it that we are so eager to overlook negociants? That's why I think that there will be a rise in micro-negociants. I do think we're probably going to find folks who are purchasing grapes as leases expire or um, as folks decide, yeah, I can sell some grapes to this guy, this upstart. I think it'd be really cool if we start having some micro-negociants. You're starting to see that. Obviously, Barash now has a negociant label. Um, Emmanuel Lassan had to re-register as, as a negociant because he he now purchases some fruit to meet his production needs. They're his neighbors. He knows how they farm. He knows where they're, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I think we're going to start to see some micro-negociants. I also think it's about time to start looking back to some of the negociants. Pro, you know, Rotorer, for example, they own 70% of their vineyards and they take all of their grape growing very seriously. Jacques Asson, same thing. Philippinat, pretty much the same thing. And you look at the prices on some of these trendy grower champagnes, 
um, a producer like Prevost, which I've mentioned several times, or Laval, who I love. You know, these wines come out of the gate, entry-level price to get your head around this producer and his style, $120, $130. Well, if you have $120 or $130 to spend on champagne, you can probably find yourself a bottle of Tatin J. Comte de Champagne. I mean, that is a historically consequential wine that has been around for a very long time and always succeeds in delivering pleasure, which is, I think, the ultimate goal of wine. So it's it's difficult to explain to someone why they're better off spending $125 on a grower they've never had before. And if the grower is pursuing singularity, yes, that's intellectually interesting and that's uh, probably a captivating wine, but does that succeed in delivering pleasure in a year like 2011, which wasn't a great vintage? Arguably, it doesn't. So for for the same money, you can get 2006 Tat and J Comte de Champagne. That's probably something I would like to do. So that's two trends, and I'll give you one more. I think the third trend would be a rediscovery of the old school growers. And I think that will also be inspired by the price on some of these new producers. I think you're starting to see that with the, everyone is getting very excited about the wines from Chateau and Tallier. Of course, those wines are very different today than they were 10 years ago. Uh, Alexander Chateau has, has pursued singularity. That is why people are getting interested in his wines. But if you are now interested in the wines of Chateau and Tallier, you of course are going to look to the least expensive wines in his portfolio to get a sense of his style. Those are the wines that you can actually afford to serve maybe to your friends at a Christmas party. And as you discover, like, okay, well, wait a second. If I'm now drinking the wines of Charton Taillet or Pierre Peters, everyone is excited about the OA Chetillon because it's really good. Well, if we're drinking more Pierre Peters and more Charton Taillet than we used to, let's look at the other original growers in ports of the United States. Let's look at Paul Barra and Jay LaSalle. Let's look at Gaston Chiquet and Marc Ebrar. And a lot of these wines you know, if you're price conscious, which I would think most people are, they deliver a really special wine for a lot less money than some of the growers that people are really excited about right now. So you talked briefly in the book about how champagne houses essentially built their own competition in different parts of the world by investing in wineries in other parts of the globe. And I wondered if you'd encountered uh, situations where the conversation had maybe gone back, like where something they had learned abroad had come back home to affect what was happening in the region itself of Champagne? Not really. What I would say, though, is that in the early days of global competition for sparkling wine, Champagne didn't know quite what to do. And what I mean by that is for several decades, they had a monopoly on sparkling wine. You know, Champagne was the first region that branded itself as a sparkling wine region. Champagne existed before Prosecco, before Cava. So as these sparkling alternatives hit the market, especially the American market, especially in the 80s, Champagne was really, really concerned. Um, so the, you know, the shift from uh, Champagne producers opened up houses in the U.S. You look at Roterer, obviously. You look at Tattinger, obviously. You look at Mum. When they moved to the United States, it was very much because they felt the competition from places like Cava. And when they realized that the American market was drinking a lot of sparkling wine and didn't necessarily distinguish between Cava and Champagne, they thought to themselves, geez, we can't be losing market share. Let's open up uh, sparkling wine houses in the U.S. to see if we can kind of capture back some of the market share we've lost to some of these other regions. And how do you think that worked out for them? You know, I'm not sure. I think actually most of them, I'm not sure if any of those houses are still owned by their um, champagne overlord. 
I mentioned Mum, Tat, and Jay, and Rotorer. I'm not sure, um, and obviously there's Shandon and, and Napa, which is part of the LMVH portfolio. But with the other three, I'm not even sure if they're um, independent or not. So I don't know the answer to that. David White has seen a succession of overlords in the history of champagne. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Levy. David White, the author of But First Champagne and the founder of Terroirs.com. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.